Today's reading is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Well, it's a real, real privilege and a treat to be with you all this lunchtime. And can I just say thank you so much for being here this lunchtime. I know many of you have been part of the National Prayer Breakfast this morning. Uh, and then to give up more time to be here this lunchtime as well is, um, is quite a sacrifice. So thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, let me pray before we go any further. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to each one of us right now through your word and by the power of your Spirit. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, on the 26th of July, 1833, William Wilberforce received news that the Slavery Abolition Act had passed its third reading here in Parliament. And just three days later, age 73, Wilberforce died. He was buried over in Westminster Abbey, and if you were to nip across there, you can read uh, an inscription about Wilberforce, and it says these words. It says, in an age and country fertile in great and good men, he was among the foremost of those who fixed the character of their time. Because to high and various talents, to warm benevolence, and to united universal candour, he added the abiding eloquence of a Christian life. I think you'd agree, that is quite a legacy, to say he fixed the character of his time. But as a young man, it didn't look like anything great would come from Wilberforce. At university at Cambridge, he spent most of his time throwing parties, playing cards and drinking. Uh, after university, he became MP for Hull, but wasn't particularly active. His maiden speech was not made uh, until eight months after he'd been elected. He spent most of the time singing and gambling in clubs like Boodles and Whites. Uh, he later wrote of himself with regards to his black gambling at that time in his 20s. He said, other people considered me a fine, fat pigeon whom they might pluck. And so really the question I would love to us to think on today and over the next two weeks is what changed? What changed and rather why did it change? What motivated William Wilberforce? How and why did transformation occur from him being this fine fat pigeon to be plucked to becoming someone who fixed the character of his time? And as we think about that, what motivated Wilberforce, I'd love us to apply that to each one of us as well. Whoever we are, whether we're a parliamentarian, whether we're a researcher, whether we're a tour guide, whether like me, we're someone who used to be a management consultant, uh, did a little bit of advising, a special advisor in Downing Street, now um, the vicar of the church where William Wilberforce worshipped 200 years ago. Whoever we are, what motivates us? 
Now, Wilberforce famously said, he said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And you could say those were his twin motivations, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And they were, they were his motivations. But in a sense, those were external things. And actually, first, it's necessary for us to look internally. How was Wilberforce himself, how was he transformed from within? Now, the title of uh, Wilberforce's best-selling book at the time gives us a clue as to what motivated him. Now, the title of this book, I I don't know if you know it, but it is not the snappiest of titles. The literary agents of today will probably have a bit of a problem, but this was the title of his book. He wrote a book entitled, A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in This Country, Contrasted with Real Christianity. Now, not particularly a snappy title, (laughs) but the short title was Real Christianity. And that is it. Christianity became real to him. Not just external religious rituals, but it became internalised. Jesus Christ became real to him. You see, in our our short Bible reading from Colossians, the Apostle Paul, he writes a great summary of real Christianity. Of what a real Christian is. If you just look at the first verse there, chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 6, says this. Paul writes, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Very simple. But a real Christian is someone who receives Jesus. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. But who is this Jesus that we can receive? Firstly, Jesus is ruler. He is Lord. He is ruling over creation. Receiving Jesus means receiving him ruling over our lives. In the previous chapter of Colossians, Paul writes this. He says, For in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now for Wilberforce, recognising that Jesus was real and that he was ruler over all, that took place for him four years after he entered Parliament. He went on holiday to the French Riviera in the winter of 1784 with Isaac Milner and Wilberforce's mother and sister. Uh, Milner was a Christian. He went on to be president of Queen's College, Cambridge. And the two men, as they travelled, they talked for hours about Christianity. Uh, And when they returned home, Wilberforce wrote this. I quote. He said, I have reached intellectual assent to the biblical view of man, God and Christ. But at that stage, it was only intellectual. So to be a Christian is to receive Jesus, to receive Jesus as ruler, but also as rescuer. Again, in the book of Colossians, in the previous chapter, Colossians 1.13, it says this. It says, for God has rescued us from the power of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul writing there, Jesus is rescuer. A, a while ago, some tourists were visiting Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and they were looking at a painting of Jesus' death on the cross when the bishop walked past. And the bishop stopped and he said, that, you know, there's a story to that painting. And he told the tourists about a hard, rebellious gang of teenagers. And this gang, they let new members into their gang only on the condition that they, set, that they did a dare set by the gang. 
And the bishop told them about one person who wanted to join the gang. And the dare for this teenager was set was this. He had to come into this cathedral. He had to stand in front of this painting of Jesus. And he had to say out loud three times at the top of his voice, Jesus Christ, you died for me and I don't give a damn. And so this teenager came in. He came in front of the painting. He said, Jesus Christ, you died for me. And then he broke down in tears. And in that moment, this boy realised what Jesus had done for him to make it be possible for him to be rescued, to be redeemed, to know his sins forgiven, and it melted his heart. And the tourist asked the bishop how he'd heard that story, and the bishop said, oh, I didn't hear it. That boy was me. Now, the details will be different for each one of us. But for each person here today, if you are a real Christian, as Will before schools it, there will have been a moment or there will have been a period of time for you when the lights were switched on, when the wonder of Jesus' love for you, in dying for you, in rescuing you, became a reality. Now for Wilberforce, that took place the following summer after his winter trip. Him and Milner, again, they travelled. Uh, they travelled around Europe again, and this time they read the New Testament together. And Wilberforce declared, and again I quote, that his intellectual ascent became profound conviction. In his personal journal, his diary at the time, he wrote this. He wrote, What infinite love that Christ should die to save such a sinner, and how necessary it is. So a real Christian is someone who receives Jesus as ruler, as rescuer, and then also as resident. Again, in, in Colossians 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul says this. He talks about the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Jesus is resident. Christ in you. When you receive Jesus as Lord, you're rejoicing in his rescue of you. That moment he comes to live in you by his Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wilberforce, he writes in his book the following words. He says, the sanctifying operations of the Holy Spirit, God's best gift to his true disciples, are too generally undervalued and slighted. And so if you are sitting here today as a follower of Jesus, you've received Jesus as ruler, God over you. You've received Jesus as rescuer, God for you. And you've received Jesus as resident, God in you. A real Christian is someone who receives Jesus. And that was Wilberforce's testimony. Someone who receives Jesus, but then also doesn't just sort of receive Jesus at one point in time and then forgets about it, but who continues with Jesus. Just look at how Paul continues, verse uh, 6 again. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And my, my hunch is there may, be, there may be one or two people here today, and you haven't yet received Jesus. And maybe even today is the day that you want to say, Jesus, I want to receive you as my ruler, my rescuer, my resident. And you know, that would be the most amazing thing for you to do. As Wilberforce put it, to become a real Christian. 
Wilberforce, when he was referring to himself, he talked about it as the great change in his life. He kept on referring to it, the great change, when he came to receive Jesus. But my guess is that there'll be many of us here that we have already received Jesus in the past. But yet we will all, all of us, will have those moments at some point or other, to a greater or lesser extent, when we ask, am I going to continue in Christ? Am I going to continue with Jesus to live my life for him? And the biggest danger to that is if we lack assurance that we are a real Christian. We think, maybe I'm not a real Christian after all, and we just give it up. That is the biggest danger. A few years ago, I went to um, the smartest dinner that I think I've ever been to. It was um, the annual dinner of some sort of exclusive club that Wilberforce would probably have gone to in his 20s if uh, he had been, uh, if the club had existed at that time. It was called the Saints and Sinners Club. You may have some members here today, I don't know. But uh, the, the, the annual meeting of the Saints and Sinners Club, Club a few years ago when I went to it, it was in the Savoy. Um, there were all sorts of celebrities there. Terry Wogan was there. There were famous comedians, former England cricketers from my youth, like John Embury and Alan Lamb, Tim Rice, has been connected to Andrew Lloyd Webber, the British ambassador to the States, and then Little Omni. That was the people. The food was even better. And you might be asking, and I don't blame you if you are, you know, how on earth did an oint like Jago get to go to a dinner like that? It's a fair question. And the answer is I knew someone, James, who's on the committee of the Saints and Sinners Club. And he invited me to the dinner. He paid for me to go. But I've got to say, as I went to that dinner, it seemed so amazing. The people around me were all so impressive and talented, and I began to feel rather substandard and second rate. You know, I, I looked across at the famous sportsman, and I thought, you know, it helped that the pinnacle of my sporting career was when I reached the finals of the under-11 tennis singles competition and I lost 6-love, six 6-1 six to Tim Henman's cousin. Uh, I, looked, I looked across at the famous musicians and, and I thought and remembered how I was thrown out of the junior choir age nine at school and that the words that the teacher said to me still echo in my heart. He said, my voice didn't quite fit in with everybody else's. Uh, I looked across at the famous comedians and I realised, you know, the pinnacle of my career in comedy is reading out the jokes from the crackers on Christmas Day. As I looked around at all these people, I had these feelings of feeling so second-rate, and I had to remind myself of the truth. I may not have the giftings of Terry Wogan or a John Embry or a Tim Rice, but I'm just as fully a part of that dinner. I had to know, James has paid for me to be there. James has organised the dinner. James is with me at the dinner. There's nothing substandard about that. And it's just the same for us as Christians. We can feel, for all sorts of different reasons, we can feel substandard. We can feel second-rate, not a real Christian. And that can come for all sorts of different ways. But as we saw earlier, Jesus is ruling over us as Christians. Jesus has paid for us to be a Christian, and Jesus is with us as Christians. He is ruler, rescuer, and resident. And here's the really striking thing. We are used to the fact that when we talk about God sovereignly ruling over this world, we generally talk about God the Father. Yet in this letter, in Colossians, Paul talks about God the Son, Jesus Christ, ruling. We're used to the fact that when we talk about God living in us, then we talk about God the Holy Spirit. Yet again, here Paul talks about God the Son, Christ in you, Christ resident in you. And you know the reason why Paul, why he refers to Jesus when we might expect him to refer to the Father or the Spirit? It is because he wants us to realise that if you, if I, if we've received Jesus, then we have received the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. If we're in Christ, we have everything that we need as Christians. Just look, would you, 
at chapter at verse nine. Look at verse nine. This is true whether you have been a Christian for forty years or forty seconds. Chapter two, verse nine. But in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And here's the key: in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You have been brought to fullness. Each one of us here, we may feel second-rate as a Christian, but all sorts of different ways. It might be we feel we have less spiritual gifts or talents than others. It might feel that we've had less deep sort of road to Damascus experiences than others. For William Wilberforce, the feeling of being second-rate as a Christian came from something different. From Wilberforce, he felt second-rate because of the job he did as an MP. He thought that if he was to continue as a Christian, he must give up being an MP. He'd got to become a vicar or something like that. That it was only second-rate Christians who worked in politics. And so what what Wilberforce did, he arranged a secret meeting to discuss it with John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace that we're about to see. And at that meeting, the older Newton didn't tell Wilberforce what Wilberforce expected to hear. Wilberforce expected Newton to say he'd got to leave politics. But actually Newton encouraged Wilberforce to stay right where he was and be used by God. And John Newton wrote to William Wilberforce these words. He said, you are not only a representative for Yorkshire, you have the far greater honour of being a representative for the Lord in a place where many know him not. And so as I close, if you are currently lacking assurance today, if you're feeling in whatever way like a second-rate Christian, for whatever reason, please hear Paul's words. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You are full in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that Saints and Sinners dinner that I went to in the Savoy, as you went into the dining room, there was a man standing on the door and he had, a, he had a tray of white roses and a tray of red roses. And as you went in, he said to you, he said, Saint or sinner? And you had to declare yourself either a saint and pick a white rose to wear, or a sinner and pick a red rose to wear. And I wonder which you would pick, saint or sinner? And I wonder if there are a number of us that we've reached straight for the red rose because we feel like a second-rate Christian, lacking the skills, lacking the gifts, lacking the talents, lacking the boldness in evangelism, lacking the the spiritual experiences of us, that maybe we feel we're in the wrong job, whatever it might be, we feel second-rate and so we pick the red rose. And I believe Jesus Christ would want to come alongside you as you clasp your red rose and he'd want to give you a white rose to hold as well. And he'd say, remember, remember in Christ you are also a saint. In Christ you are a real Christian. The great change has happened. You are full, you've been brought to all fullness in Christ. In Christ you are full. Shall we pray? Let's pray. going to pray a prayer. Just if there's anyone here today, actually, you're saying today is the day that I do want to receive Jesus as my ruler and rescuer and residence. It's a prayer you might want to echo in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, 
I acknowledge where Christianity for me up till now has been more about the externals, the rituals and rules. And today, Jesus, I choose to receive you as Lord. And I thank you for rescuing me through your death on the cross. I ask you to come and be resident in my life by your spirit and rule over my life as my Lord. Jesus, may I know the joy and assurance of being brought to fullness in you. And please help me to continue to live my life in you, rooted and built up in you, strengthened in the faith as I'm taught, and overflowing with thankfulness.